And as Christians, we know exactly why we're celebrating, don't we? We're celebrating the birth of Christ, that God came and visited us as a little baby. The creator of the universe came to us. The word, the word of God was made flesh and dwelt among us. And last week, Pastor Jared preached about Jesus coming as humanity's hope. He met our greatest need to rescue us from sin and from death, even when we didn't know what our need was. And today, we're going to see how Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's found in Mark chapter 10, and you can find that in your pew Bible on page 846. But before we look at the passage, I want to talk just a little bit about the phrase, he came. So if you've been a Christian for a while, you have heard those two words a lot, right? Jesus came to save us. He came to die on the cross for our sins. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and might have it abundantly. So there's lots of examples. But if you back up just a little bit, you'll realize that those two, that phrase is a little bit odd, right? So my, uh, my job here for the next 30 or 40 minutes is to uh, preach on this passage. I'm an amateur. But what if I began the sermon by saying, I have come to preach this sermon? You might think, well, it's a bit of an odd beginning. Come back next week, uh, my wife and I will be up in uh, Sunday school teaching the kindergartners and the first graders. So what if I started that lesson, I say, children, I have come to bring you a coloring sheet. You think? Or what if I kicked it into the third person, I said, the Sunday school teacher has come to bring you a coloring sheet. At that point, you think, oh, who is this guy, right? Like, what's his deal? And the reason is that way of speaking puts an emphasis on the person doing the speaking. Instead of simply saying what you're going to do, it focuses on the person who's doing it. And so when Jesus says, I have come, or he says, the Son of Man has come, he's purposefully drawing attention to himself. He's announcing a grand arrival. And when you see the logic of this passage, the flow of the argument, it all comes down to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So I want you to see that as we read. So we're going to read from Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. And if you could, please stand for the reading of God's word. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able and Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John, and Jesus called, to him, called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So I'd like to break this passage down into four parts. Four-part outline. 
So the first section, 35 through 41, the ambition of James and John. And then a single verse, the greatness, what is greatness among the Gentiles? And then in verses 43 and 44, greatness in the kingdom of God. And then finally, the greatness of the king, who is Jesus himself. And one thing you might notice when you first look at the outline is that the word service does not appear in the outline. So the reason is that this passage is about service, what it means to serve, but it's service as a means to an end. And the end is greatness in the kingdom of God. So that's where we're going. So the passage starts off with the disciples, two of his disciples, James and John. They're two brothers. They're the sons of Zebedee. So this is actually a bit of a humorous story in the gospel record. It's not uncommon for the disciples to be squabbling among each, uh, amongst each other. But in this context, uh, it's, it's the most sober and somber of contexts. If you look just the next chapter, you'll see Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem. It's Palm Sunday. And it's his Passion Week. He's about to, he's about to be uh, delivered over to the Jews and to the Romans, put to death, crucified. And then if you look just a couple verses earlier, in verses 33, 34, in chapter 10, you'll see that Jesus just predicted his death and his resurrection. So this is serious. And Jesus' ministry is coming to a head. And James and John know that something big is about to happen, and they want in on it. A seat immediately to the right or to the left of the supreme ruler is a place of incredible influence. So their request actually shows that they believe that Jesus is this glorious king who's going to come, but their ambition kind of jumps out ahead of them, and they start you know, jockeying for positions. And I, I think we can all relate to this. Uh, while trying to do the right thing, our selfish ambition has a way of seeping in and kind of messing everything up. A couple examples. Uh, what if you want to treasure the Word of God? You want to uh, treasure it in your heart. And so you say, I want to memorize some Bible verses. And you work on it. It doesn't take long before you start thinking, hey, I'm memorizing a lot. I'm memorizing more than this guy. Or what, uh, when we serve in the church, we can be helping with a Bible study, we can be helping with children, we can be maintaining the facilities, even serving donuts. It doesn't take long before we come to the opinion that I do it well, I do it better than this other guy, and these other people don't really know what they're doing. So pride seeps in as Christians, and we have to daily put to death the, de the uh, desires of the flesh. So James and John are not at their best here, but they're really clueless about how much worse it's going to get. So Jesus just tells them point blank, point blank, you don't know what you're talking about. But notice that Jesus doesn't tell them that they're wrong for wanting these prominent seats. He doesn't rebuke them for asking. He just tells them what they don't know. So he uses two metaphors to describe what's about to happen. The first one is drinking the cup. So this is a reference to the cup of God's wrath. It's a very common uh, figure of speech in the Old Testament among the prophets. And the metaphor is like a forced drinking of a big bowl of wine and then staggering around and being crazed. And Jesus is about to fully drink the cup of God's wrath. And the baptism he's talking about is not a water baptism uh, that would be part of like an initial profession of faith. It's more of a metaphorical use of the word. So it refers to the torture and the death that Jesus is about to experience with the hope of deliverance. And we actually use this word, uh, or this, this word in, in a similar way when we refer to a baptism by fire, uh, that somebody's about to learn it the hard way, right, some, through some grueling experience. So the, the two disciples, James and John, they hear this, but they're still in. They say, we're able to do this. And the Bible never records uh, uh, in, the, in the Gospels that Jesus ever laughs, but I gotta think he had a, a bit of a, you know, internal chuckle at this point. 
But later in the New Testament, it records that Jesus was right in the prediction he makes just after that. James becomes the first apostle who's martyred, and that's recorded in Acts chapter 12. And his brother John is going to suffer exile on the island of Patmos, and that's recorded in Revelation 1. Then Jesus makes a curious statement. He says that these positions of power to, the right and to his right and to his left are not actually his to grant. And this is actually a very similar answer to what Jesus gives in Acts chapter 1 when the disciples ask him, when are you going to return? And he says that it's something determined by his father. And he basically says, you're asking the wrong person. And if you look at the words carefully, it's not a statement of ignorance or of impotence. It's really a statement of submission. God the Son gladly submits to God the Father and is serving to accomplish his plan. And finally, in this section, this first section here, we see the other 10 disciples' response in verse 41. So when they hear this, they're really ticked off. The ESV says they're indignant. And if you look at the King James Version, it says they were much displeased. So why do you think that was the case? So maybe they see the pride and foolishness of James and John. But I don't think that explains why they're indignant. I think they're mad because they're getting cut out they want a piece of the action, and James and John are trying to get there ahead of, them, ahead of them. So our second section is verse 42, greatness among the Gentiles. Let's read it again. It says, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So Jesus calls all 12 of them together, kind of a, a group huddle. It's a teaching moment, and he sits them down, and he asks them to think about what they know, what they know about the rulers of the Gentiles. So these would be leaders of the pagan, non-Jewish world of that day. So this was a long time ago, you know, 2,000 years ago, but I think, you know, get out your history books, I think we can get a pretty good idea of who the disciples would have thought of. So this is sometime around 30 AD in Palestine on the eastern edge of the Roman Empire. I think it's pretty safe to say that the first person they would have thought of would have been Caesar. Right? He was the emperor of Rome, if you could put up his picture here, at this time it's Tiberius Julius Caesar, just known uh, for, uh, short as just Tiberius. So he was the second emperor of Rome. He was the adopted son of Caesar Augustus. And when you read of the history of his journey to becoming emperor, it's just one story after another of, it's a struggle for power, assassinations, exiles, forced suicides. He ruled over this massive empire from in the west in Spain all the way to the east in Egypt, and he held it together with ruthless power. Suetonius is a historian. He lived in the second century, and he wrote a book called The Twelve Caesars, which is kind of a wild read. And after listing all kinds of cruel things that Tiberius had done, he concludes this. He says, Tiberius did so many other wicked deeds under the pretext of reforming public morals, but in reality, it was to gratify his lust for seeing people suffer. So there's Caesar. I think another more local ruler they would have thought of would have been Herod Antipas, uh, also known as Herod the Tetrarch. He was part Jewish, part Samaritan, part Edomite, but whatever power he had, it was Gentile power. So he was called a, he's, he's what's known as a Roman client king, which means he's a king who's allowed to rule only because Rome finds it helpful. And type, uh, Herod, Antipas, was actually educated in Rome, and one of his great accomplishments was building a new city on the Sea of Galilee, and he called it Tiberius in honor of the emperor. 
And Herod was the guy who married his uh, Herodias, who was his niece, and his brother's sister. And when John the Baptist called him out on it, he threw John the Baptist into prison, and later on, he beheaded John the Baptist. And this Herod was also the one who put, uh, turned Jesus over to be put to death, and he also killed James, the apostle. And finally, I, don't, uh, I think if they would have stretched their minds back just a few hundred years, I think the disciples would have thought of Alexander the Great. So he's my third choice. So he lived around 300 B.C., He was a brilliant military general. He fought a total of 20 battles and he won all of them. He just always won. When you look on Wikipedia, you'll see like a boxer score, 1-0, 2-0, 3-0, all the way down to 20-0. I mean, he just just won. Uh, He conquered uh, conquered Greece, he unified all Greece, and then he pressed east. He conquered Persia. He went all the way into India. Alexander was the reason why the Greek language and Greek culture we had made it to Israel and it later paved the way for the Romans. He was a lover of reading and philosophy. He had a teacher, none other than Aristotle, but he had a violent temper. He was reckless and ruthless and he completely annihilated any opposing force. And to top it all off, he claimed to be divine. Uh, he considered himself a god, the son of Zeus. And he famously said, I would rather live a short life of glory than a long one of obscurity. So each of these men, Caesar, Herod, Alexander, they were rulers of the Gentiles. They were the great ones of that day. They ruled with authority, and they lorded it over anyone beneath them. They had money, they had their way with women, and they crushed anyone who stood in their way. So I was thinking about how to draw a parallel to our own day. Now, you may disagree uh, with my opinion on this, but I think we're blessed that our political leaders don't actually reach the level of unaccountable ruthlessness that they had in the ancient world. But human nature has not changed in 2,000 years. And the same sin nature that we have means the same potential for wickedness is there. And right about the same time I started studying this text, uh, we entered, the U.S. entered into a cultural moment that I think illustrates this perfectly. And so the example I chose was Harvey Weinstein. All right, you all know, you know the name now, right? He's in the news everywhere. He was a big-time Hollywood producer. He was the founder of Miramax. He's known for movies that we've seen, like The English Patient, The King's Speech, Pulp Fiction, Goodwill Hunting, the list goes on. So, and according to Quartz Media, a research group, they studied all the Oscar acceptance speeches all the way back to 1966 to see who has been thanked the most by various actors and actresses. So Harvey was thanked 34 times, Uh, which is second overall, and it actually is tied with God. So Harvey Harvey and God are second on the list, and uh, only behind one other person, who is Steven Spielberg, uh, who's thanked 43 times. So this man oversaw budgets of hundreds of millions of dollars, and he could direct them, uh, if you were in his favor, he could direct them your way. So what did it take to get into his favor? So it turns out, for a lot of young ladies that were just starting out in their acting careers, they had to satisfy his sexual whims. So I'm not going to get into the details. You can read them in the news stories, right? But it's really a disturbing abuse of power. And now it started to snowball with new figures in politics and the media being uh, called out every day. So in our culture, Harvey Weinstein is one of our great ones. He exercised authority over men and women and he lorded it over them. So it's really exactly the same. 
But Jesus' warning or command in the passage is not to Mr. Weinstein. And it also wasn't to Caesar, and it wasn't to Gentile rulers. They're just the counterexamples. His command was to the disciples, which means his command is to us. And that's found in the next verse. Verses 43 and 44. We'll look at greatness in the kingdom of God. Jesus says, But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So the immediate command is to not be like the Gentile rulers. We have the same fallen human nature as Caesar and as Harvey. But there's, so there's potential that we do go in the same direction. But it shouldn't be so for us because we're part of a different kingdom. In the kingdom of God, we're commanded to be servants. Instead of lording it over all, we're to be slaves of all. So we'll look a little bit more about what it means to be a servant. But before, the, before we go there, I think there's something striking in these verses that I don't want you to miss. Just like earlier, Jesus doesn't correct their desire to be first. He doesn't say, hey, look, you really don't want to be great. You really don't want to be first. Instead, it's the opposite. He says, do you want to be great? Do you want to be first? Do it this way. I'll show you how. So the disciples' ambition is not wrong. It's misguided. He's saying that the path to greatness is through servanthood. The way up is down. But the point, the goal of going down, of humility, the goal of meekness, the goal of being a servant is eventually to go up and to go way up, higher than you could achieve by reaching for it yourself. Now, this basic idea is found in many passages in Scripture. I picked a few. The first one here is in Matthew. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus' point is not that treasure is bad, it's actually that treasure is good. And it's so good that you want to make sure that it's really treasure and not just a big pile of junk. So he tells us how to live for what really lasts. The Apostle Paul, at the end of his life, had these words for Timothy. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So Paul is being poured out. He's empty. He has nothing left in this world. But his sights are set on a reward and on the appearing of Christ, which makes everything worth it. And then one more. Jesus said, this is recorded just a few verses before this passage. Jesus said, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. If you look around with an earthly human measurement, it seems some people are first. They have money, they have power, they have relationships, and what seems to be real happiness in life. But Jesus is telling us this isn't the final measure. And because Jesus is the judge, he knows what the final measure will be. If this world is all that is, then not only should you eat, drink, and be merry, but you need to elbow that other guy out of your way, otherwise you might miss out. So I had an illustration of this uh, just a couple weeks ago on Thanksgiving Day. So uh, I wake up in the morning, my wife's got this great meal coming, 
and I get to, I help out just a tiny little bit, and then uh, I get to sit down and watch football. So it's just great. So I'm, I'm enjoying myself. And we have lunch, and then we go back to the football game. Now, while you're watching football, there's a lot of commercials, right? They're just hitting you left and right, and a lot of them are Black Friday commercials. So I'm sitting there watching it, and my, my uh, oldest son, who lives on the East Coast, he was back with us for the week, and he was watching the game a little bit too, but then he jumped on his computer, and he was hitting all the websites for these, uh, these Black Friday deals, and he comes up to me and says, Dad, Best Buy, they're open at 5 p.m. tonight, Thursday night, and they got this awesome Black Friday deal, 50-inch, 4K TV for $178. It's unbelievable. Dad, you got to get it. I think to myself, you know, my TV's fine, right? It's seven years old. It's, it's, not, the it's not the greatest, but it's not the worst. I, and I really don't want to stand in the line. So, but, you know, Justin, he keeps working the, <laughs> working the website, and this is it. This is the deal. So, uh, eventually I say, I think with my wife's encouragement, I say, okay, Justin, why don't, will you go stand in the line for me? If you do that, I'll show up at 4.30 and I'll buy the TV. Let's, let's do it. So he goes off at like 2.30 to stand in this line. <laughs> so, and I show up at 4.30. So when I get there, uh, there's, he's about number 50 in the line at this point. I guess some people have been camping out for this thing. Um, so, and, so he's number 50, and there's probably about 100 or 200 people behind him now. In the next half hour, it had to be at least 500 people in that line. It was... Uh, it was, I couldn't see the end of the line. It was like down the parking lot into the next store's parking lot. It was, uh, it was massive. So we're standing in the line waiting, and I, I'm, Justin already met all the guys. He's a real friendly guy, and so we're, we, he's talking to all the people around him, and so I, I, I meet them, and we're talking about what we're going to get. Turns out, everybody's coming for the same TV. Okay? <laughs> so, <laughs> and so, and, uh, and people are concerned, like, uh-oh, you know, there might not be enough. But then somebody else says, look, I, I was in the store yesterday. There's stacks of them. And so, so we're all a little bit anxious. So then at 5 o'clock, uh, uh, the line starts moving. And we're moving in slowly, right? They let you in in batches. I don't know how many of you did this Black Friday thing. Uh, so, it was, uh, so they're letting you in. And we get into the store. And the ten I'm feeling a little bit of tension now. Like, am I going to get this TV or not? And um, you get into the store. You get about halfway into the store. And suddenly the line just stops. And you start seeing other people. They got the TV. And the line is creeping, and I'm feeling a little bit, you know, I, I, was, I didn't even want this TV. I'm just, I want, you know, but I want the TV. So, um, so it's, it's, we're sitting there, and people are walking by the TV, and then the word starts kind of percolating through the line. They're out. And sure enough, yes, we did not get the TV. Like, the last TV went to somebody like five people ahead of us. So, no, so then what do you do? So you walk around the store, and it turns out they have like a bajillion TVs. So I got another TV. <laughs> So uh, I had to pay a little bit more, but you know, it was, I, still, I think I still got a good deal, and it's really nice. So Black Friday turned out fine. So now use your imagination a little bit. What if the day before that, the, so the day before Thanksgiving, the manager of that store gave me a call? The manager of that Best Buy store, he gives me a call and says, David, I need your help. Tomorrow's Black Friday and it's going to be crazy. There are going to be hundreds of people. We are going to be taking in, we are going to make a lot of money this day. We're going to be taking in money hand over fist, okay? But I really don't want things to get out of hand. I need help with the line. So what I want you to do is go in that line, and I want you to be helpful. I want you to calm people down, answer questions, just help the day go smoothly. If you do this, it is super valuable to me. I'll give you an 80-inch 
4K TV. Totally worth it to me, okay? So now, with that perspective, now get back in the line, okay? How has your perspective changed? You see someone who's getting a bit agitated. You go up and say, how can I help you? You see someone who's worried. Will there be enough TVs? So you try to get them some information, maybe show them some other options. And when, the line, when it's five o'clock and the line starts to move, people are pressing in and you're just standing there, right? You're just looking for ways you can help. And then one of those guys you were talking with who's got the Best Buy ad, he looks at you and says, hey, the line's moving. Aren't you coming with us? Why aren't you, you know, getting in here with us? You might miss out. He can't understand that we're not going after the same thing. All he can see is the Best Buy ad. And if, according to that, if that's all there is, he's right. It's the best deal. And that's what our world is like. Everyone's looking at the equivalent of the Best Buy ad. And if you only look at that, you need to fight for the best deal, or you might lose. Jesus is announcing something totally different. It's the kingdom of God. And it will, be a, it will have a glory and a prosperity and a time span that dwarfs any earthly kingdom. And he says to us, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And the way we seek the kingdom of God is through service, by becoming a servant or even a slave of all. And this is not about earning your ticket. Ultimately, it's an act of faith. Do you believe what Jesus is saying? Do you think he is who he claims to be? If we believe him, then we let go of what he says is worthless, and we hold on to what he says is valuable. Service is thinking of others as more important than yourself because people matter more than things. It's doing the dishes or running an errand or showing up to help just because somebody needs it, not because it's the work you're most qualified to do. Service is bearing with the failings of a weaker brother and seeking to build him up because we know he belongs to the Lord. So we do it for our brother and we do it for our Lord. And Jesus said, this is the path to true greatness. So do we believe him? I'd like to illustrate this once more and compare Jesus' teachings to Eastern religion, which would include faiths like Buddhism, Hinduism, and Taoism. So here's a book cover called Jesus and Buddha. I found it on the internet. It's, the book actually goes with a documentary, and I didn't see the documentary. I watched the trailer. And uh, the argument sounds appealing. Jesus says, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And you can easily find quotes in Eastern religion that seem to say the same thing. But it's not the same if you read the words carefully. So I picked a, a passage for us to read, two chapters from a very ancient document called the Tao Te Ching. It dates back to the fourth century BC. It's had a huge influence on Confucianism and on Chinese Buddhism. It was written by a guy named Lao Tzu or, or Lao Tzu, which is a title that just means old master. It has 81 short chapters and I picked two. So the first one, chapter 44. It says, fame or self, which matters more? Self or wealth, which is more precious? Gain is loss, which is more painful? He who is attached to things will suffer much. He who saves will suffer heavy loss. A contented man is never disappointed. He who knows when to stop does not find himself in trouble. He will stay forever safe. So do you see some similarities with Jesus' teaching? There are some. Fame and wealth come to nothing. Don't be attached to things that don't last. But what's the solution? What's the solution here? 
If worldly ambition comes to nothing, the Eastern answer is to cut out ambition. It's not just fame and wealth that comes to nothing. Everything comes to nothing. So real wisdom, according to the Tao Te Ching, is to be at peace with that and trying to just stop fighting for more. So another chapter that I think illustrates this even better is chapter 48. In the pursuit of learning, every day something is acquired. In the pursuit of Tao, every day something is dropped. Less and less is done until non-action is achieved. When nothing is done, nothing is left undone. The world is ruled by letting things take their course. It cannot be ruled by interfering. So the Taoist or the Buddhist can agree that the first will be last and the last will be first, but only because he believes the first and the last arrive at the same point, which is nowhere. It all washes out in the end. And Jesus means something radically different. The first in this world really will be last in the kingdom of God. And the last really will be first. If you're great in this world, it counts for nothing in the kingdom of God. But if you're a servant, that counts for eternity. And that brings us to our final verse, which is the main point of the passage. And the main point is Jesus himself. Ultimately, his explanation for what servanthood is and what greatness in the kingdom of God is centers on, what, on who he is. So let's look at the greatness of the king. It's in verse 45. Jesus said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It begins with the word for, which means he's giving the ground or the reason for the words he just spoke. But to me, the most fascinating word in this last verse is the second word, even. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. What it means is that this standard of greatness, what it means to be first in the kingdom of God, applies even to Jesus. He could have sat on his throne and told us these things, what the kingdom of God is like, how we ought to live. We'd have no right to complain. We'd have to do it, right? He's God, we're not. That's the way it is. And you could have seen, you can see also that if he would have done that, it would have been good. It's like the manager at Best Buy. Just giving me the job giving me the information, he's doing me a huge favor. He doesn't have to come down and get in the line himself. But that's not what God is like. Instead, Jesus humbled himself and became a servant of all, and he did this to accomplish something big. I picked a few verses that illustrate Jesus' intention. This is from Philippians chapter 2. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And the next verse, next verses, it shows the, the, uh, the result of this. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So when Jesus humbled himself, he did it for the glory that was waiting for him. It says exactly this in Hebrews. Uh, the writer says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand, of the throne of God. One more verse from John. 
Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal, eternal life. So the way up is down. And this is not true just for us, but for God himself. And we have this privilege of peeking in on the divine plan and seeing what God has in mind. So as we close, I'd like to offer two reasons why Jesus' own example of servanthood is especially meaningful to us as we consider how we ought to live. The first one is that this is the only way a message like this becomes believable. So imagine you're in a room, you're in a room and some rich and powerful guy comes into the room and he speaks to you and the other people in the room and says, okay guys, this is what I want you to do. The plan is, I want you to give up your worldly wealth. I want you to become a servant. I think most re reasonable people are going to be suspicious. We're about to get ripped off here. But what if someone comes into that, that room, someone who has everything, and you know he could have everything, but he's given it all up because he says, this is the way forward. He makes it believable because he lives it himself. And that's what Jesus did. It's also what his followers did. Why do we believe what Mark wrote? Why do we believe what Paul or John or Peter said? The Jesus' apostles and followers, they wrote down these words and they, they said they saw Jesus had risen from the dead. If they were sitting there in safe, comfortable positions, who would believe them? But that's not what happened. They all gave their lives for their testimony. Most were cruelly executed and they would prefer that rather than deny what they knew was to be true. And that's something hard to dismiss. And that same standard of credibility exists for us too. If we're chasing after worldly success, worldly greatness, no one's going to believe it when we say that our hope is in Christ and in his eternal kingdom. But if we really lay down our lives for our neighbors, it's compelling. Second, the reason why Jesus being a servant is so meaningful to us is that the only way this path of greatness is possible for us is if God does it for us. We don't have the ability to do it ourselves. The Bible says we're enslaved to our own lusts and desires and we can't break free. Even if the prophets or Jesus himself came and told me about this better way, I wouldn't take it. I'd just stick with what I could see. Instead, Christ delivered us. He came as a servant to give his life as a ransom for us. The word ransom could literally be translated the means or the price of release. It's related to other Greek words that are translated redemption or to loose. We were captives in sin and Christ redeemed us. He purchased us for himself. The wages of sin is death, so the price I owed was my life, but Jesus gave up his life so that I could live. And the Bible says that he ransomed us for a greater purpose, which is his own glory. Paul wrote to Titus that Christ intended to purify for himself a people for his own possession. And in Ephesians, it says that Christ gave himself up for the church, but his purpose was so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. So God is up to something big, but in his wisdom, he starts small. It ends in glory, but it begins in service. And we see this so clearly at Christmas time when we consider how Christ came. He came as a baby, he came humble and meek. He came to serve, but he did not come without ambition. It was his plan, decreed in eternity past, 
that he would give his life as a ransom for many and so win a glorious kingdom that would stretch into eternity, and he invites us to follow him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're in awe of your greatness and your wisdom. We see our own pride, our selfish ambition, and it just is, it appears small. But by your mercy, you've opened our eyes so that we can see it. You've graciously called us into your kingdom and have given us a share in an inheritance that Christ won. We ask that you help us to lay down our lives as Christ laid down his life for us. Show us how to serve as Christ served us. We want to treasure him and his kingdom above anything else this world offers. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.cccLH.org. Dot org.